history nerds and historians. My name is Christina and this is Effed Up History, where we talk about a little tidbit from history that's super fucked up. Today is part four of my Salem series, although it involves a lot more than just Salem. Actually, it doesn't really involve much of Salem at all, because today we're talking about the brief history of witchcraft leading up to the Salem witch trials, sort of setting the scene of the century or so leading up to those trials in Salem. I think it's important to look into and analyze because so often in history, an event is not an isolated incident and it has precedence. So sit back, relax and practice your, oh good God, what the fuck faces. So to go back a little further than the last century before the Salem Witch Trials, in the 1480s, a book called the Malleus Maleficarum, translated to mean Hammer of Witches, was published by Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Sprenger, two German Dominicans. The book was split into three parts. First part discussed the beliefs and practices of witches, that witches received all of their powers from Satan, that they renounced God and Christianity, that they had sex with the devil and sacrificed children to their dark lord. Second part talks about how witches harm people and crops and cattle, discusses spells and sorcery and gives anecdotal evidence. Part three talks about all about the legal aspect of witches and how to convict them of their terrible crimes, how to interrogate them, how to try them, how judges are able to lie to them and promise immunity to certain people, and also how to torture them because that was a totally acceptable way to get a confession out of accused people during this time. Malleus Malvacarum wasn't the first guide to witch hunts, and the accounts weren't the first witch hunts. Witch hunts hadn't really reached their peak at this point, but people believed in witches. Uh, But up until the time of publishing it, convictions only really happened when harm was believed to have been done. Malleus Malvacarum made witchcraft heresy, period. End of story. If you were a witch, you were in league with the devil. And if you were in league with the devil, you deserve to die. Period. This book was actually really popular. It sold more copies than every other book other than the Bible for the next 200 years and influenced later books on how witch trials were conducted. It literally became the guide to judges and inquisitors. In 1542, Parliament under King Henry VIII of England passed the Witchcraft Act, which said that witchcraft was punishable by death. It was actually the first law that defined witchcraft as a felony, but that was repealed in 1547 when Edward VI became king. In 1562, a new act was passed under Queen Elizabeth I that said that witchcraft that caused harm or death was a crime punishable by death. And then we have King James. James Charles Stuart was born on June 19, 1566 in Scotland. His mother was Mary Stuart, also known as Mary Queen of Scots. She was a Roman Catholic in a time when Catholics and Protestants were not getting along. They were fighting a lot. So her rule with her husband, Henry Stuart, also known as Lord Darnley, was rocky, to say the least. Now, it's said that Henry secretly conspired against the queen and allegedly either killed or was involved in the killing of her personal secretary named David Rizzio a few months before James was born. And then in February of the next year, James's father was mysteriously murdered. And then three months later, his mother married again to a man named James Hepburn, who was the main suspect in the murder of her last husband. Classy. 
Very classy. Uh, this made people hate her even more, which led to her arrest in June of 1567 by a group of Protestants who then locked her away in Loch Leven Castle. The next month, on July 24, 1567, she was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne and 13-month-old James became James VI of Scotland. In 1568, Mary escaped from prison and gathered an army, but was defeated and fled to England, where she lived under house arrest until 1586, when there was a plot to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I, and Mary, Queen of Scots, didn't really try to stop it, allegedly. So she was convicted of treason due to her complicity and was beheaded on February 8th, 1587. When Queen Elizabeth I of England died on March 24th, 1603, she was unmarried and had no heir, or at least not a legitimate one there are rumors, but no legitimate heir, thus ending the Tudor dynasty and giving way to the Stuart era. James became king because his great grandmother was the aunt of Queen Elizabeth I, and that is a good enough connection. But I hear you screaming at me. What about the witches, Christina? 17th century exploded with witch hunts and witch trials. Between 1590 and 1662 in Scotland alone, I read that almost 3,000 people, most of them being women, were executed for being a witch. And that's largely attributed to James Stuart, King of England and Scotland. In July 1589, James married Anne of Denmark by proxy, meaning that they married, but they weren't actually together. Someone stood in their place. This was really just a formality and their marriage wasn't technically legal until they were in person with each other. But a series of misfortunes prevented her from traveling from her home country of Denmark to James in Scotland. There are always terrible storms and she had to turn around. So later that year, James sailed to retrieve her in what some people call the only romantic episode of his life. Sounds like a catch. While he was in Denmark, he talked to a lot of the royalty there who told him that their country was plagued by witches, which then led him to believing that these storms were caused by witches in an attempt to kill Queen Anne with both of them to cause tragedy and strife within the royal family. And this was confirmed the next year in 1590 when a woman in Tranent, Scotland confessed that she was a witch. Her name was Galus Duncan. Any Outlander fans? Because I about shit myself when I was researching this and I learned that Galus Duncan was an actual fucking person that was accused of being a witch. I mean, the timeline is like way off by 150 years, but still, Galus Duncan was real. Anyway, so Galus was a skilled healer and her employer, David Seaton, suspected her of being a witch, which she denied, of course. And so he started torturing her. And under torture, she admitted to being a witch and accused others in the town. Even though she later recanted her statement, the damage was already done. And thus began the North Berwick Witch Panic, where over 70 people were accused. And we honestly don't even know how many of those were executed. It's this funny thing where it's like, there's not a lot of records kept about witch trials during this time. uh, About who was executed and who was accused and all of that. And part of it. I wonder, is it like just really bad note taking during that time? And then the other part of it makes me wonder, is it just that these people, by the thought of being in league with the devil, were thought as less than and didn't even deserve to be documented? Because I find a lot of the times it's like, yeah, over 3000 people were killed, but we don't really know all of those people. And we can't really say how many people it was. It could have been as many as 10,000. We don't know. And that bothers me so much because people died. Regardless of if they were in league with the devil or not, people died. And that should have been documented. And it wasn't. Sorry, this is, uh, I I watch a YouTuber that is named Ripenstein. And she talks about her Swiss cheese brain 
and how she's constantly just trying to fill holes of her Swiss cheese brain with different nuggets of information. And um, that's just a Swiss cheese hole of mine that I have that I just want to know all the people who were accused and why they were accused. And history fails me in that. So James I witnessed the North Berwick Witch Trials. And a few years later in 1597, published a book called Demonology, which is all about divination and necromancy and black magic gives this whole history of witchcraft and their practices and the reasons why as a good Christian it is your duty to seek out and destroy witches or something. In 1604 he expanded the Witchcraft Act of 1562 that said basically people who were convicted of witchcraft and communing with familiars would be put to death without the benefit of a clergy. So during this time there was this belief that when a witch sold her soul to the devil he or one of his demons would periodically appear to them in the form of an animal typically a cat or a toad or a hare, which are actually still associated with witchcraft even today. I mean, just look at Harry Potter. But the familiar was an integral part of the belief of witchcraft in the 17th century, uh, especially later on when the witch trials of the century really started exploding. We've talked a little bit about familiars and how the beliefs of them were used in the Puritan witch trials in the American colonies when we spoke about the Connecticut witch trials, which is the first episode of this podcast. Please do not judge it if you go and listen to it. I was a baby podcaster and I will probably re-record it at some point because it is not my favorite and I hadn't found my voice yet. But anyway, the witches were believed to have special witch teats that this animal demon thing would feed from and in return they would advise them or perform different tasks for them. James was convinced that witches were out to get him and his greatest fear in life was dying a violent catastrophic death. And this is really confirmed again for him in 1605 traced to one specific event. Say it with me. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plots. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. In 1605, there was a plot to assassinate King James I by blowing up the House of the Lords on November 5th, which was the state opening of Parliament. It was ran by a group of Catholics who were attempting to reinstate a Catholic to the throne after decades of Catholic persecution. Can I say Catholic any more times? Guy Fawkes, the most popular of these conspirators, was the one who was in charge of the explosives, but they were foiled at the last minute when an anonymous letter was sent to William Parker, a member of Parliament, which led to the discovery of Fox and 36 barrels of gunpowder. In January of 1606, Fox and eight others were hanged and then drawn and quartered. But it was said that before they did this, witches carried out a black mass and summoned their lord Satan to oversee this act. But it was foiled by the grace of God himself, or however the phrasing goes. I'm not Christian if that is not painfully obvious. But something else that was happening during this time was the people of England trying to get to know their new king. And something that just kept coming up was his hatred of witchcraft, which led to the people of England having a heightened interest in something that was already kind of interesting to them. And it seemed to me to have become almost like patriotism to hate witches. In fact, one of the major reasons that Macbeth was written was because of this. Shakespeare was trying to prove his loyalty to King James and prove that he wasn't just loyal to Queen Elizabeth. I did a whole video about that at one point. That was like an educational take analyzing Macbeth while talking about the history behind it that was on my YouTube page, but it got copyright claimed. And although it's legal because of fair use laws in the States, I don't feel like trying to fight it. Uh, If there's ever an interest, I can record it on the podcast and like read the Shakespearean lines myself, but I'm not nearly as entertaining as Patrick Stewart. So to go back just a little bit, in 1604, King James authorized a new translation of the Bible 
the King James Bible that is widely still used today. So that was published in 1611. He did this because there were a lot of religious differences in his kingdom, which makes sense because he was in charge of Scotland, England, and Ireland. And I can only imagine how different those views are, <laughs> like just looking at how Christians practice in the southern United States versus the northern United States. It is like very different, very, very different. There are rainbows on the churches up here. I never would have saw that in the South, like at all. In 1612, the year after the Bible was published, which may or may not have been a partially influencing factor, we have the Pendle Witches. I'm going to give a brief version of this because I'd love to dive into it more at some point and do an entire episode about this. But if I go into like all of the dirty details, this episode is going to be 17 hours long. So things that we would consider white magic were totally acceptable in ancient times. Um, but it was really acceptable in most places, even in the 15 and 1600s. In 1500s in England, it was totally normal to have like village healers and herbalists who practice magic. But beginning in 1612, each justice of the peace in Lancashire was required to keep a list of everyone who didn't attend church or take communion because it was sort of this like lawless area, possibly because the people were Catholic, or at least Catholic leaning. Like when there were issues with Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth and the Catholic Queen Mary was in charge, Lancashire had no problem with this. They were very Catholic and they were not being executed, which is where Bloody Mary comes from, which I will do an episode of at some time as well. But like I already mentioned, white magic and healing was mostly acceptable and done by people in each town. So how was it that in an environment like this, there started a witch hysteria? In Lancashire, there was a woman named Demdike. I think that's how you pronounce it. Google told me Demdike, and I don't think that that's correct, uh, who was said to be a witch and a healer for over 50 years. She was like in her 80s at this time. One day in that same year of 1612, Demdike's daughter, Alison Device, passed John Law on a path while they were both traveling in Trodden Forest, and she asked him for some pins, which I thought was really weird at first. But in reading more about it, during the 17th century, pins were actually really expensive because they were handmade and took a lot of skill. But they were also used for different magical workings, like curing warts and divination. There's some uncertainty if Allison was trying to buy them from him or if she was just demanding them. But either way, John Law refused. And so in turn, Allison cursed him. She summoned the devil and asked that John Law be made lame. And soon after, only a few steps down the path, John Law fell. Most historians believe that he had a stroke and was left completely incapacitated. Was it a crazy coincidence? Did the stress from the interaction with Allison exasperate an unknown condition, making his blood pressure rise until his body responded? Or was it witchcraft? Allison believed it was witchcraft and positive that it was her that had caused this, that she confessed to the whole thing. On March 30th, 1612, Allison was brought before Justice Noel with her brother and mother, and they were all snitches because they started accusing each other of witchcraft. Her brother James said, this isn't the first time that Allison's cursed someone. And then her mother Elizabeth told the justice, well, my mother has witch teats. I'm not a witch, but my mother might be. And then when Allison was questioned further, she also accused her neighbors, the Chaddixes. Allison told Justice Noel that Anne Whittle, also known as Chaddix, who was in her 80s at the time, had actually murdered four men through witchcraft, including her father. And that Allison's father was so frightened of Chaddix that he was paying them eight pounds of oatmeal every year except for one year, and he was dead by the year's end. 
and on his deathbed, as he took his final breath, he blamed Chaddix. I mean, that seems pretty suspicious to me. Um, could have also just been a way to implicate someone that your family's having a feud with. But who knows? Maybe they were actually witches. So Demtiki and Chaddix were brought before Justice Noel, and they confessed to selling their soul to the devil. Chaddix's daughter Anne was also implicated, so Demdiki, Chaddix, Anne, and Allison were all thrown in prison to await their trial for Maleficium, which is basically causing harm through witchcraft. And it probably would have ended with that, with only four people, if it wasn't for what happened on Good Friday 1612. On Good Friday, Elizabeth, Allison's mother, held a get-together at her home, and her son James stole a sheep for everyone to eat, when they should have been at church. So the meeting was looked into and the officials decided that it was actually a coven meeting in mockery of the holiday and eight more people were arrested as witches, including Elizabeth and James Device. But the thing about the Pendle Witch Trials that makes it so like Salem is Janet Device. Janet Device was Allison's nine-year-old sister and during these witch trials, she accused her entire family of being witches and her testimony was accepted. Because even though she was a child, it was believed when it came to witch trials and treason that children's testimony was totally acceptable. Her mother had to be forcefully dragged out of the room because she started screaming at Janet and cursing her daughter. And her testimony led to the execution of her entire family. Well, no, strike that. Not her entire family. Her grandmother, Jemdiki, was not executed. The conditions in prison were so terrible that she died while awaiting her trial. Just like in Salem... So James I died in 1625 after having a stroke. And after his death, there was this masochistic, witch-obsessed, English dude void that just needed to be filled. Matthew Hopkins was born around the year 1620 in Suffolk, England. Not much is known about the first 24 or so years of his life. He said that he was a lawyer and that he was destitute, but I'm honestly not really sure how accurate that is because he was a liar. <laughs> in March of 1644, he allegedly discovered his first witches. While in Manitree, Essex, he claimed to have heard women discussing meetings with the devil and his little Puritan heart told him to do something about it. And he... He took care of them. Not in a good way. I mean, like, he killed them. 23 women were accused, four died in prison, and the other 19 were convicted and hanged. And Matthew saw a career opportunity. Magistrates during the English Civil War in 1645 and 1646 would pay a lot of money to seek out witches. So Hopkins took on the title of Witch Finder General and would travel around to different villages in East England in areas like Essex and Suffolk and Norfolk with his team of accomplishments, I mean witch hunters, known as the Lady Prickers, where he would sell their services to townspeople. And once he was hired, he would seek out the witches in the town and make them confess their crimes. A lot of the techniques that he used, he read in King James's demonology. He would deprive the women of sleep to make it easier to pull out a confession. And then his lady prickers would cut the arm of the accused. And if the woman didn't bleed, she was a witch. But because it was such a wealthy profession, the lady prickers would often use fake or dull knives. Like here, let me cut your arm with this butter knife or like the 1600s equivalent of a flimsy McDonald's knife. Oh, you didn't bleed? It must be witchcraft. His favorite thing to do, though, was the water test where he would tie a woman's hand and feet to a chair and then throw them in the water. And if they sunk, 
they were innocent and also dead, but allowed into heaven. And if they floated, they were guilty and faced their trial that probably also ended with their death. The thought behind that was like when you sold your soul to the devil, your body would reject the holy waters of baptism. So they would throw you in the water. And if you sank, you were fine. And if you floated, it was your body rejecting the holy water. So, um, I mean, either way, you're probably dead. So that's fun, I guess. Uh, in the three years that he was in service between 1644 and 1647, I read as little as 230 and as many as 300 women were killed as witches. And they were all women. It wasn't like a healthy mixture of men and women. It was all women. And I am getting major incel vibes from him and his gang of merry men, lady prickers. Like, I bet that wasn't the kind of pricking that they really wanted to do. Am I right? And where did Matthew learn those bondage techniques? I mean, I make light of it, but he was a serial killer. He would go into town and say that he was officially commissioned by the parliament, but he was never given that title. He was a liar who liked torturing and killing women in the name of God. And thankfully, he died in 1647, or who knows how many more women he would have killed. There's folklore told that Matthew Hopkins himself died when he was accused of being a witch and forced into the water test and drowned because he was actually innocent, which would have been beautiful, poetic justice. But actually, he probably died of uh, an illness like tuberculosis on August 12th of 1647. Although it isn't totally the same, Matthew Hopkins reminds me a lot of George Corwin, who was the sheriff of Salem during the witch trials, who was also in his mid-20s and full of bravado and liked to torture people. Uh, one of the major things that he did was crush Giles Corey to death. And then when accused witches would flee the town so that they didn't get executed, he would steal all of their stuff. We're going to talk about him later. But even though he was dead, his work was still not finished. The same year he died, his book, The Discovery of Witches, was published. And the first person was executed as a witch in America. Her name was Alice Young, and she kicked off the Connecticut Witch Trials, which is, again, the first episode of this podcast, and you can listen to all the details there. I will not go back through all of them now. Governor Winthrop and the leader judges in Salem reference the use of Hopkins' books during their own trials. The last execution for witchcraft in England was in March of 1684 in Exeter, when Alicia Molland was put to death, but America picked up the hysteria... Because then there was Salem, but that's a story for another day. So all this to say that things that happened in Salem that we will talk about in length very soon all had precedence elsewhere. Bridget Bishop was not the first person to be executed as a witch in America. She wasn't even the first to be executed as a witch in Massachusetts. That was Margaret Jones in 1648. It wasn't the first witch trial or hysteria. It wasn't even the biggest in the world. It was an insane time where more than 20 people lost their lives that was over a century in the making. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving a review. If you find yourself in Salem, keep an eye out for my tours that I'm starting. It's under the Whimsical Witch Tours, which is my other business where I like make candles and home decor and other fun stuff, pop culture, whatever, whatever, whatever. If you have any stories that you'd like to hear me talk about, please reach out. I'm always looking for new ideas. You can email me at fdephistory at gmail.com or reach me on any social media. I'm at fdephistory. And if you want to hear me delve into any of these stories like a little bit more like the gunpowder treason plot or the pendle witches or anything like that let me know 
I'd love to do some deeper dives, um, but if there's no interest, then I'll find other stuff. I could talk about witches forever, though. And as always, remember, friends, history may be watching you, so don't fuck it up. Bye.